is Najee Dorsey for another installment of Bio Talk here with the acclaimed, leading, uh, you know, I hate to even say watercolor artist, just yeah, the leading <laughs> artist, man, in the country, Dean Mitchell. I mean, Dean, thanks for thanks for joining us for this installment of Bio Talks, brother. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, man. Pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Looking forward to your questions and hopefully enlightening people about my journey as a as a as an artist, as an American artist, and as an African American artist, because the the two are intertwined with with my career. So. What's up? Well, listen. Let's let's dive into. Uh, so, how did you first come to 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 making art as your life's journey? Give us some background. Uh, actually, I started very young. Uh, my grandmother who uh, raised me from 11 months old. Uh, my mother, who uh, got pregnant, uh, had an affair with a married man. And uh, so she fled to town and uh, gave birth to me. And, and no one knew she had a child, except she had told her brother, my uncle, and he told my, my grandparents. And so when she came home without me, they asked her, well, where's the child? And wherever he is, you go back and you get him. And, and we will raise him and you will go back to college because my mother didn't want anybody to know that she got pregnant because she was gotten thrown out of college. Mm. So, and my grandmother got me a paint by number set uh, right on the Quincy Square. Now, Quincy, Florida is about 22 miles uh, you know, west of Tallahassee where I grew up in a very rural town. So, uh, and my grandmother got me a paint by number set and that re- that's really what got me interested in art. It was a little paint-by-number set with two paintings of Jesus. And, of course, we know those Jesus pictures were all white. But uh, uh, the bottom line is I, I did the first one and then the second one I freehand. And so I, I you know, I just kind of took it from there. I did cartoons and different right. things like that from Saturday morning. We got our first television. I would sit there and try to draw cartoons and stuff. And so then I started doing paintings of my family members, portraits and different things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've always had a love for it. Uh, but... I never had any, any inkling of a of an idea of, of what that encompassed in terms of making a career out of it and make, actually making a living out of it. But I just love doing it. Now, you know, many many of us, you know, I don't know if this is the same for you, you know, was pushed toward more graphic design, you know, like in school and going to college. Did you have that type of experience or, or were you uh, supported and encouraged to, to pursue more of your fine art? Actually, uh, it's, it's very. I had a very interesting uh, teacher uh, who uh, I lived in Philadelphia. Actually, I lived in Philadelphia for about from sixth grade through ninth, mm-hmm. and then we moved back to, to, to Quincy, Florida. And I I ran a, I I happened to have a teacher, a Caucasian teacher. His name was Tom Harris, and there were four of us, four black gentlemen, who really really loved art. But there was one guy who was really really talented, very very gifted. And he wanted to enter art shows. And so Mr. Harris actually started taking us to fine art shows, you know, local shows like the Tallahassee uh, Art Fair for for high school and junior high school students. And then there was another uh, art fair in Mariana, Florida uh, that that he also took us to. But at that time, we had no idea that we were were the only blacks that were even going to these shows. Uh, And so, uh, and in fact, I've been working on this documentary, and he's on there explaining some of some of uh, the experience he had as a white man taking these four black kids around to art shows. Mm-hmm. He was actually called the nigger lover for taking us around to all these different shows, though he didn't share that with us when he was taking us around. Uh, but he really, you know, 
that's what really got me interested in the competitions and art shows and things like that was it came from a junior high school art teacher. Then when I moved to high school, we had a black teacher named, named uh, Clinton Hudson. Uh, and Mr. Hudson was involved as well. But as we know, because of race, I think that Mr. Harris was a little bit more comfortable in dealing with in those venues. And so he really stayed with us throughout college and so forth and, and actually helped us uh, get into college and with, uh, you know, different schools that we looked at and, and stuff like that. So that's in that. And, and really, when I got into into college, I actually felt like I didn't belong there because, you know, when you come up in a, in a predominantly African-American community, because, you know, segregate, we were very separated. Uh, and so there was definitely a black community and a white community. Mm-hmm. And so people are telling you you're talented, you're gifted. And in some ways, as human beings, we naturally compare ourselves. This is how we measure ourselves. And so when I got into college, I realized that there were kids there who were very well off, who had access to private tutoring and, and was really far more advanced than I was. And so you begin to, to start looking around and realizing that, man, maybe I'm not so talented. Maybe I don't really belong here. Uh, and I think I must have lost about 60 pounds from the stress of it all the first semester. Mm. And uh, when I got back home from Ohio, because I catch the bus, I couldn't afford a plane ticket, so I would catch the bus. So I went home for Christmas, and my grandmother saw how frail and thin I was. And so she called my mother up immediately and said, I don't know what they're teaching in this art school, but whatever it is, he can't go back. He's as thin and frail as, as he's just too frail. I don't know what's going on. And so when I got on the phone with my mother, she said, well, the gravy train ride is over. She said, what are you going to do with your life? She said, I can't take care of you the rest of your life, so you're going to have to decide what you want to do. So I decided to get back on that bus uh, right after Christmas break, and I went back. And on my way there, I kept saying to myself, you have got to put your whole soul into this if you even have an inkling of a chance of even becoming an artist at all or doing this at all. Because my mother, my mother had already warned me that a black man could not possibly sell pictures in America not make a living selling pictures. Chair mm-hmm. brought over some professors from A&M who were African-American who, was, who were doing art. And she said, Dean, he's really talented. He can't even sell his work. So what do you think you're going to do? And so these were the constant things that were, were thrusted at me. And then when I started going to the museums, I realized that what she was saying was just that it resonated with me because when I went to the first museum there, I went through room after room after room. There wasn't a still life, a landscape, or anything by the artists of color, least of all images that reflected us at all. Mm-hmm. And so I began to go, wow, this is what my mother was talking about. And so it took a whole different psychological twist for me. Uh, being in a school that was, was dominantly white, uh, and uh, when I graduated, it was only, like, I think, maybe three of us who were, who were black who even graduated that year. And so it just took a whole nother, the museum thing really just took me for a loop. And then when we were there, uh, there was a guy who opened up a gallery. I think his name was Kojo or something like that. He, he was a photographer. But we'd heard about it. A friend of mine named Ray Leatherberry, who's from the Maryland area, he said, man, there's a guy, a, black, a brother who opened up a gallery. Let's go over and check it out. So we went over to check it out. And we noticed that these guys had been to Paris. They had been, they had studied in Europe and different places. I'm like, wow, I was pretty impressed. I was impressed until I saw the prices of their work. And Ray said, wow, $50, $25. He said, Dean, you, 
you getting that for your stuff? He said, these guys, he said, what? And so Ray and I were just kind of freaked. I was going, wow, these guys have done all this stuff and they can barely sell their work or even decent prices for their work. So it really like took me, that, that was another thing that set me back too. I went, wow, maybe my mother was right. Maybe I've gotten myself into something that's hmm. way over my head. Maybe I really need to rethink some of this. And this, wow. was, in, and this was in Philly. This was in actually in Columbus where I saw the guy. I was in college at this time. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. When I was in Philadelphia, I was there from sixth through ninth grade. But okay. this is college I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it it just really uh, and I started going to the museums more frequently, and I started saying, "Who are these artists?" You know, and I said, "Who are they?" So I started doing background checks on them. I wanted to know not only uh, where they went to school at. But who was their patron space? Mm-hmm. Who was supporting them? Uh, where were they educated? What region of the country uh, were they were they living in? All these things begin to probe my sensibility because as I begin to read more and more about them, I start realizing that there was not only race involved, but there was also class and money and power involved with it as well. Right. The well, let's talk a little bit more a little bit more about that. Um... Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to push it through. I mean, we, we're in your college years. I mean, talk to us about your early years. Once you, you know, that um, you, you know, once you once you finished at Columbia, uh, I mean, at Columbus College. What what happened after that? Well, you know, as I said, I, I uh, when I got to the Columbus College of Art and Design, I, like I said, I was I felt like I was far behind, so I took extra classes, mm-hmm. extra classes, and people know me for watercolor. I can tell you exactly how I ended up dabbling more into watercolor. I was more of an oil painter when I went to college, okay. uh, more of a dense medium. Uh, but there was a student there. Uh, I, you know, I didn't even know what a portfolio was, believe it or not. I, when I sent my, my things to the Columbus College of Art and Design, I sent them up in a little vanilla envelope. I was surprised I even got into college. Uh, I didn't even know what a portfolio was. Right. Uh, until I was on work, I was on work and a guy came through and he had this big black huge thing and I was like, what is that? He said, it's my portfolio. And I said, well, what's in it? He said, well, here's some paintings I got to show, show to some professors. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, can I see him? He said, well, I'm kind of in a hurry, but I said, are you coming back through this way? He said, well, I can. I said, well, I'd like to see what your watercolors look like. And so I hung around until he came back through and he, he put it on the floor and he opened it up and it was there was these watercolors they were just mesmerized and I was like wow that's watercolor oh my god and I ran back to the dorm I was staying with a brother from New York his name was Charles I can't remember Charles's last name another brother from Kentucky his name was Jesse mm-hmm. and I ran back and I told these guys that yeah this is guy he's just his watercolors and I was, he said oh Dean you can forget it that kid's been tutored you ain't gonna never get that good at watercolor you are out of your mind so the next day I went to the library and I checked out every book they were they could possibly let me check out on watercolor. I did my assignments and I practiced. And over the summer I practiced. So when I came back on my my during my sophomore year, they weren't laughing anymore. Mm-hmm. They were going, "Wow, that's pretty good." So suddenly, uh, and and I I took a watercolor course and there was a teacher there said, "Wow, you're really getting good at this." He said, "Have you ever heard of the American Watercolor Society?" Mm-hmm. I had no idea what that was. That's the, Mr. McClellan, I don't know what that is. He said, I think you should, you should try to enter. I entered it, and I got in on my first try. And I had no idea of the magnitude of what that society was. 
the American Watercolor Society had members like Winslow Homer and Edward Hopper, and you know, this is an old society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that actually gave me more confidence to enter more shows and different things on a, on a more national and international level. That happened while I was in at the Columbus College of Art and Design. When I graduated, I took a job at Hallmark Cards in commercial art because I have majored in illustration and minored in advertising because I was told it was just too difficult to make a living as a painter. Mm -hmm. So I, even though I took a lot of painting courses and different things. So when I got to, to Hallmark, uh, I was entering art shows. I had had a number of shows, uh, you know, I had a gallery even that was handling my work when I was a teenager. That's what, that's how I got through college. I had a gallery that was selling my work in Panama city, Florida, and that was because my mother saw an advertisement in a local paper. She said, they have an art show, some kind of co- competition in Panama City. You should enter it. So when I looked at it, I said, well, I, I probably can't even get in that. I said, it's like 20, 30 counties, you know, people, you know, artists that are submitting. I probably won't even get in. She said, well, it doesn't hurt, baby, to try. So I ended up getting in, and I won a prize. Mm-hmm. And I went down to the show, and when I walked through the door, they said, oh, I said, I'm Dean Mitchell. And they said, oh, you're black. And I was like, okay, I'm Oh, yeah, I'm black. I'm like, well, I'm kind of confused. And so she says, oh, no, no, no. You're the first black person to ever enter our show. And so they were very excited about me. There was a lady named Joanne Dickerson mm-hmm. who was determined to get me a gallery when I was about 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. We went up and down the panhandle, not knowing that, unbeknown to me, that people didn't want my work because I was black and were afraid they would run off their customers mm-hmm. if they handled a black artist's work. So my first show was held at the Safari Lounge, which was owned by a black couple. So we put up easels in the Safari Lounge, which was a place where they sold alcohol and they had, you know, dances and stuff like that for, you know, for adults. So the, the, the white lady knew the person who owned this and they opened their doors. That's why I had my first show. So then she said, well, I know a gallery that just opened up on Back Avenue. She said, let's go over and see, see this guy. He saw my work. He was a Hungarian immigrant who had just moved up from Miami, and he said, I'll do a show for you. I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, I'll do a show for you. I was like, you'll do a show for me? He said, yeah, we'll do a show. He did a show for me, and un- unbeknowing, I, I uh, didn't realize I had, had a following in Panama City because I had won this prize in this art show. Mm-hmm. So I get on the trailway bus, and I stay at his home, he opens his gallery up. He go, we go to open up his gallery. He frames all the artwork up. There was about three blocks of people lined up to buy my work in Panama City. All white people. Wow. And this is that you, you, you're 18 at this time. I'm 18. Mm-hmm. 18, 19. Wow. Somewhere. What, what, yeah. what, was, what, was, what was your price point? I'm just curious at that time. 20 bucks, $15, $25, $30. <laughs> hey, man, we all been there, you know. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was a piece of heaven for me. Right. You know, and it helped me get through college. I, when I was in college, I would send my assign, some of my watercolor assignments down there, and he would sell them. It helped me get art supplies because yeah. I almost got thrown out of school for two, a lack of having $200. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, it was 400 I had saved up 100 A girl I was dating gave me $100, so I needed $200. And I didn't have the $200, and I called my mom up. She didn't have it, so I called up a, one of my cousins. who They were both Ph.D. graduates and stuff. They didn't have $200. So I called my mom back up again and begged her. And so finally she came out with the money because the, 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 the dean of the school said, son, you got to have $200. He said, well, well, where's your where's your father? I said, Ms. Kazani, I don't know my father. 
My father has never been in my life. He has never done anything for me. I know of him, but I don't know him. And so I stayed in school because my mom scraped up the money. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's it's just been it's been interesting, you know, for me dealing with the lack of a father, dealing with you know the racial component of being in a field that I barely even understood myself growing up in the rural South. Uh, and it has been enlightening and it has been an educational process for me, even in terms of race relationships, because I've had to this day, sometimes uh, billionaire white people who bought my work and I've met multimillionaire black people who wouldn't even buy anything from me. Why do you think that is? I mean, are they buying art at all? Because just because they've got money don't mean they've got an interest in art. No, it, it, it does not. And I have had some blacks who have bought a lot of my work. Right. Uh, and that's why I said, you know, in regards to sometimes people will ask me, you know, they'll ask me about the racial component of my career. Mm-hmm. And it's very complex because at the same time, like I said, my first gallery was a gallery that was owned by a Hungarian immigrant who moved up from Miami. It was a white gentleman who took my work in and promoted me throughout my, you know, up into my 20s, uh, even until I got out of college. And, and had a job at Hallmark even. Uh, and then I had a white, you know, junior high school teacher who took us around. At that, that time, he was, he, was, he was being ostracized by the white community for even being, helping us at all. Mm-hmm. And also not even liked by the black community on, on, on some level. And so there was all these complexities about helping these, these young black men, whether he, was he trying to help us or was he trying to exploit us? And there was all these dynamics in terms of, of, of race uh, that came into play. But, but as I matured as a, as, a, as, a, as a person, I started, you know, I couldn't always look at race as just black and white. There were a lot of grades mm-hmm. within that because there were, there were a lot of opportunities that came my way because of different organizations of competitions and shows that I was entering that were not being ran by 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 black people, they were being ran mostly by white people. Well, uh, I can't I can't think of any. I mean, I can't think of really any national competitions that you know that are that are sponsored by black organizations. Yeah, especially at a time when I was coming up, yeah. in particularly, uh, and when I got that homework, the racial component became even more uh, was was being discussed quite a bit amongst uh, illustrators who were African-American who were at Hallmark Cards. Mm-hmm. There were a small handful of us. And I kept saying I wanted to be a, you know, like I wanted to be a fine artist. You know, I was telling them I wanted to be a fine artist. They said, man, money's an illustration. And I was like, well, it might be, but I want to be a painter. And so they would say, well, have you been over to the Nelson Atkins Museum? And I said, yeah, I've been over there. They said, well, do you see us on the wall? Do you see us anywhere up there? He said, white people don't want us up in their museums. You know, so, you know, the best thing for you to do, man, you better think about being an illustrator and sticking with illustration because, you know, during that time period, Coca-Cola had, had certain uh, projects for black artists. Anheuser-Busch, as you know, had the great kings and queens of Africa because I did one of those illustrations. Mm-hmm. And then 7 Up, so they had certain kinds of products that they were selling within the core of the black community. And so they needed black artists who, to do these certain uh, kind of product endorsement type things, calendars and different things. Mm-hmm. Cooler's Beer had them. And so, but there was no fine art. There was no fine art component. I didn't even know any black fine artists. They weren't, when I was in art school, they didn't even talk. We, I had art history, but we weren't mentioned. The Harlem Renaissance movement wasn't even talked about. Okay. It was not even discussed. 
So I didn't I didn't learn about all that till I got out of school. I learned about Tanner and you know and different you know Augustus Savage, you know different painters that I started learning learning more about. Uh, but I knew nothing of, uh, about the Harlem Renaissance movement. It wasn't discussed. Uh, the, the thing that I knew about the Harlem Renaissance was probably mostly about writers, mm-hmm. writers and poets, Langston. But as visual artists, it seemed like they were almost invisible. There wasn't any books. I couldn't find any books on us. And if I did find anything, it was old paperback, and it had like maybe 20, 30 artists in it with a little blurb. You never got a sense of who these artists were, their history. Never got a sense of them. So, so there was a, there was a, like I said, there's a lot of layers of confusion and complexities about even how to maneuver myself as a person of color in the fine art world at all. Well, let me ask you this because, uh, I mean, we could def- we definitely going to tackle more, 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 more uh, of the whole race thing and identity. But I'm curious, like when, when, when you look back on the work that you did in your you know, early your late teens and early twenties. What what was the subject matter? Has the subject has the subject matter changed, or what were you doing during that time? The subject matter, you know, uh, actually, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go out. Of course, we couldn't afford a camera, so we naturally would go outside and draw from life. That was just a natural thing you did because you could only afford certain materials. So mm-hmm. a lot of it was mostly pen and ink and pencil and stuff like that, and and, and water based paints here or there, uh, and. You know, I, I would save my lunch money sometime and buy myself, a little, you know, these little tubes of oil paints and different things like that. But the subject matter was basically uh, family, friends, and environment, mm-hmm. meaning the, the, the houses and different structures. Now, remember I was telling you about the four kids that were – that, this, that mm-hmm. this junior high school teacher of mine would take around? We uh, – there was one that was – his name was P. Tansy. He was very technically extraordinary. This guy was, this guy was winning awards – against professionals when he was a teenager and i struggled with technique i struggled with technique and i was going to drop out of art when i was in about 10th 9th 10th grade and mr harris had a long talk with me he said do you realize that you see abstractly he said your compositions are very abstract and i said mr harris i don't care nothing about abstract art i want to make it look like something you know, I need to learn how to, and he said, he said, you know, you can learn that. He said, but teaching somebody how to see something abstractly is very difficult. To teach. Mm-hmm. He said, you have a natural flair for composition that I've never seen in a child, in a kid. I've never seen it. And so, uh, but my first work was just always, uh, I've always responded to the environment, my family, people that were close to me, uh, how people lived. You know, I wanted to portray the environment that I grew up in, and I wanted to portray it with a certain amount of truth, with a with a with a with a, with a truth and a dignity to it, uh, a dignity that I felt was lacking from what I saw sometimes in museums by the things that I was seeing in, in some of the books. They showed, you know, some of the the history. They showed some of the buffoonish type imageries of, of people of color, and I was just kind of really just outraged by that. I said, "We look nothing like that." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went against every grain of any anything that that remotely made us buffoonish in any kind of way. And I know there's a lot of postmodern deconstruction stuff going on, and I understand that sensibility, but it's not something that that speaks to my spirit uh, uh, from the environment that I grew up out of the rural South. Yeah, no, it makes it makes it makes it makes a lot of sense to me, you know. Because I've been I've been mm-hmm. accused uh, by some. Uh, African-American curators as kind of doing what 
white people want, that they, they look at the work as something palatable, that they look at it in some way that it, it reminds them of the old South and stuff like that. And I don't see my work in that shallow of a way. No. Uh, my grandmother worked, yes, she worked as a cook. And some, a lot of times the people didn't even know her name, they called her the cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I have painted her, uh, you know, repeatedly throughout my life because I felt that, you know, a lot of her struggles, I could see it in her eyes. I could see it in her, in her, just her demeanor. You could just feel it. You could feel the energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these people who somebody want to call quaint and, 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 and sort of passive, these people are far from that. Their, their sense of, of who they are is, is just, I don't know, it's hard to explain. They are the people that we stand upon their backs and their shoulders. Yeah. Now, they because they are old and weary, we look upon them as folk. I take high offense to that. Yeah. Do we really see ourselves that way? Is our self-hate that deep that we can't see beyond the surface of what people have dedicated their lives to making, making this country better? I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, I don't, I don't get that at all. The um, when I when I look at your work and and it it'll be interesting to see what curator would have told you that foolishness in terms of, you know, what it reminds them of. Because, but I understand this one thing is that people, I, I think people come to work a little differently. Like I know, like I've done pieces in the past that'll be like, you know, um, someone earning it someone working at you know earning some clothes or something like that that real old-timey you know south scene and if 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 someone white if one of my white clients came in and bought it they may have bought it for a different reason than what something than what i intended it for like for them it may be you know uh marriage you know mary that that did their clothes but for us that's big mama so that's right. you know, that's and right. so it's, it's a whole nother sensibility. Yeah, yeah, and and so like when I look at and so when we look at your work, man, I mean it's just dignified. And see, when I say folk, I'm talking about down down home, down earth people that you know we grew up around that's familiar to us. So I don't take, you know, I don't see folk in a in a in a bad sense, man. And so, you know, I don't know, man. It's just it, this is yeah. I, you know, I I, I guess I, I did something uh, with my Angelou, and I have met this curator. I won't say who he is, but. He said that he speculated that that all of my collectors were rich white folk, oh, and yeah. and basically that I I basically uh, catered my work to toward toward their taste, but there was some nostalgia uh, attached to the figure and so forth. And I met the gentleman, I gave him an autograph book, uh, and he seemed to be a very nice nice man. Yeah. And uh, this had happened after I'd done a book with, with Maya Angelou uh, and when Marcellus did the, the, the mm-hmm. CD to the book, the gentleman who owned the limited edition book club asked me to go to Texas A&M and talk about the project. And that's when all this emerged. And I had no idea that someone of color felt that way about my imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, it kind of took me for a little bit of a loop. Uh, but, you know, as, as you say, we all bring our own baggage uh, with us when we look at even the images of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I have never let my vision be swayed by anyone's opinion. Uh, it is based purely on my observation as a full human being. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I bring to the table. Well, you know, some people, uh, some people too, though, Dean, is like in the industry, they think if you're not, you know, pushing the envelope in some avant-garde, futuristic you know, you know, a way of this, you know, the, the way the black figures handled, then you're not progressive. You're, you know, you're, 
you know, you're, you're behind the, um, uh, you're behind the times. Yeah, yeah. you behind. Yeah, you behind the times, man. And it's like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't get that because I know, like, my, and I don't know. I guess looking at the museum world, and you know, they're looking for something totally different than the people that I'm working with. Sometimes they completely, you know, behind the curve. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of times, the museum world is behind, behind what people actually buy. Now, they don't give a damn about what people actually what resonate with more. You know, with more the regular folk or more people no, in general. No, they do not. They do not. They have, a, they have their audience and that's who they, yeah. that's what they care about. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, uh, I'm not swayed either way from, from either side of the fence mm-hmm. because I have been embraced by the more modern curators and some of them. Uh, and so, because my work crosses over into different, different realms because there is work that, that do, uh, speak to the political plight of people of color. And I'm, I'm very much aware of that work. I'm very much aware of what I do. And, and not only just with the, the craftsmanship of my work, but I'm very much uh, assured of what I want to say politically, too, about my work at times. Uh, and sometimes there isn't uh, – I don't want to dabble into the political arena. Sometimes I just want to do a landscape or a still life. And why shouldn't I, as a full human being, be able to enjoy as a painter a landscape, a still life, or anything else that I want to do? Because when I look at a lot of Caucasian artists, uh, even those who who emerge into abstract and, and, and to the avant-garde, some of them start off very traditional, and then they kind of emerge and they experiment it. And they were able to experiment because they had the patronage, they had the people to support them, and so they, they were able to stretch their creative process because they had the patrons in the back uh, for, to be able to do that. And so whereas most of us as artists of color, a lot of times, it's not that we lack the talent. What we lack is people uh, people wanting to support us, wanting to support our, our creative voices. And sometimes when you put a voice out there that people don't want to hear, the first thing they're going to do is clam down on their pocketbooks because they don't like what you have to say politically or, or, or intellectually or anything else. And so the way they hold you from progress is they pull back with the purse strings. Uh, we all know that that's how, that's how people's voices are controlled. It's, it's usually by money and power. So, but if you're able to maneuver yourself in a way where you can can create a larger, more you you throw a wider net, where you may not catch the big fish, but you catch enough small fish to give you the power to flex your economic muscle to move past all the bullshit. Well, talk. A, let's talk a little bit about how you've navigated the the market. You know, I think we've had some. Uh, you've you've had a really interesting perspective that I think everybody needs to be aware of. You know, I mean, can you talk talk about the art market and the industry and from your from your vantage point? You know, I've I've been I've been fortunate in, uh, for a number of years to be able to sell my work, but not always. You see, mm. uh, when I first moved to Kansas City, I, I had a gallery there that, uh, and of course, at the time, I had no idea I was the first artists of color that he'd ever, ever represented. And so I remember working on a show for a number of months and uh, I must have made about $700 after working on a show for almost eight months because by the time they took their 40% and, and the cost of framing and all that, uh, I had very little left. So I began to go, hmm, this is why it's hard to make a living because the galleries take a big commission too. So uh, then I raised my prices slightly. This is where I begin to understand more about the economic end of things. I raised my prices slightly, but well, nobody would buy anything. 
And so the gallery owner said, you know, you do really great work, but he kept saying my work was too personal. So then he said, well, why don't you go down here and paint some of this? So I said, paint some some area of town in Kansas City. And I, and I said, well, well, Jack, I don't, I don't know about that. I said, uh, is it interesting? You know. So I went down there and looked around. I said, now, if it's interesting to me and it inspires me, I don't have no problem with that if somebody's mm-hmm. suggesting something. Mm-hmm. But if I go down there and it, and it doesn't inspire me, chances are I'm not going to paint a damn thing. So I'll go there and I go, this is crap. I don't want to paint. This doesn't inspire me at all. So I went back and I said, I don't want to paint. That's not, I'm not into that. That's just not, it doesn't speak to me as a, as a human being. It just doesn't speak to me. It's tourist stuff. You know, he said, well, your, per- your work is too personal. You're going to have a hard time selling your work. So I decided at that point, I said, okay, he doesn't have the right audience for what I want to do. There you go. He does not have the right audience. And I kept hearing, uh, you know, when I had the show there, the people would come in, there wasn't a person of color in the room like, other than me. They would say, well, who's Dean Mitchell? And they, you know, they said, well, the black guy, the black guy. <laughs> Being referred to the black guy, <laughs> you know. And so finally I realized, I said, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm never going to hit tennis balls with these people. I'm never going to play golf with these people. These people are from the richest area of Kansas City. I'm not, I'm not a part of their social class. I have to recognize that. I am not a part of their social class. And so I said, okay, apparently race is an issue. How can I get past this issue of race? Because it's coming up all the time. So I decided I would enter competitions and and not show up. So I felt like the competitions would put me, put my work in front of peers. I would send my work in. They didn't know what color I was. And I would win prizes. And I, and I, and believe it or not, I said, I can't be second. I can't be third. This is what I, I told myself. Not that I thought that it could ever happen. I said, you gotta be first. First. Mm-hmm. And I psychologically psyched myself up saying, you gotta be the best. You can't be second or third. And believe it or not, that crazy, thing that I was wrestling with in my head I put I mean every time I was sending work out there I was getting top prizes left and right it's happening and I got so many top prizes that American Artist Magazine knocked on the door to do an article I was afraid to have them run a picture because a lot of my friends said you're not going to get anywhere if you let them run a picture you know just just tell them to run the artwork you know and I said they won't run the artwork without the photo so I sent them the photo because they wouldn't run the artwork. Wouldn't run the artwork. My first museum show happened because of that article. I got my first museum show in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. That's how I met Garbo Hearn. Mm-hmm. Hearn Fine Art. She came up to the show. And I remember dating a girl. Uh, and, I, and, and, and her father, I was over for Sunday dinner, and he said something about so what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm an artist. And he said, I said, I used to work at Hallmark. He said, how much you made at Hallmark? So I told him what my salary was. He said, I ain't nothing to take care of no family. I can't take care of no family with that. Of course, natural day to door, so he's thinking about the economic part of this thing. Mm-hmm. And then so I was feeling all proud of myself. Like, I got, I got a show coming up, Mr. Franklin. He's like, show? I said, yeah, show at a museum. A museum? So he turned around like a museum, like, hmm. You know, here I am, like, you know, barely, you know, 30. <laughs> I'm talking about a museum show. And so... 
he said, where's the museum? I said, it's in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. He said, he turned around and said, excuse me? Poplar Bluff, Missouri? He said, boy, you can't do no show in no Poplar Bluff, Missouri. He said, that's clan territory. Mm-hmm. Said, you better go there and talk about doing no fine art show. I said, Mr. Franklin, I don't care where it's at. I'm doing the show. So when time for the show comes, people didn't have enough money to ship the artwork down there. So I said, no worries, I'll drive the artwork down, I'll rent a U-Haul truck. Mm-hmm. Drove my work down there. And the museum bought a couple of paintings, and the show went really well. And I wrote, went back down there and got it. Now, had I listened to that and got scared, that would have never happened. You see what I'm saying? I would have never gotten to that museum collection. And I did another show that was up in Old Lyme, Connecticut, the same way, where Pfizer, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies, was a sponsor. They didn't even want to pay enough money to get the artwork up there. I had to drive it up there myself. And then when I got the artwork up there, it's like, wow, this is really good. Like, like they were expecting something else from somebody. I don't know what they were expecting, but whatever it was, I was like this huge surprise to them. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this guy's really talented. Oh my God, this guy's really good. I'm like, what the? What? <laughs> I've had that repeatedly. Hey everybody, it's Najee Dorsey. I hope you're enjoying this installment of Via Talks. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media pages. And if you're in the market for fine art, visit us at shopbaya.com. That's S-H-O-P-B-A-I-A.com, where you can see some of the latest of contemporary art as well as many of our legacy artists. Thanks for tuning in for another installment of Via Talks. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. gallery that picked me up uh, in New Orleans called Bryant Galleries. Uh, he had a, he was, he also had a gallery in Jackson, Mississippi. And I remember, I remember his gallery because the first time I entered a, a show, it was, uh, it was the Mississippi Watercolor Society in Mississippi. I entered, I would enter all these watercolor shows, and I, I got top prize, and I went down and got the, I went down and got the award because by then I was getting a little more known, so I, I, I boldly went down and got the award. And this lady named Sandra Williams took me over to a to the gallery. It's called Bryant Gallery in Jackson, Mississippi. And I saw, you know, watercolors. They were they were half, they weren't even a fourth of my size. They were going for eighteen, twenty thousand dollars. I was like, oh my god, can he be selling work? He said, well, that's because it's Bryant Galleries. I was like, wow. I mean, the guy, this guy was selling. His name was Donnie Finney. This guy was selling like crazy. Mm-hmm. He said, you're just as good. I said, yeah, but I could barely get a thousand dollars for my work, and it's like twenty by thirty inches. Nobody, nobody's knocking my doors down to buy anything. And so you speed all this stuff forward. I, forward a good, good ten years, this guy started calling me up, wanting to represent my work because he'd seen me in Southwest Art Magazine. He'd seen me repeatedly in American Artist Magazine. He'd seen me win all these awards throughout the country, and he wanted to represent my work. But he wanted an exclusive. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't give nobody an exclusive, Mr. Allen. I said, that's that's too much control. Boom. He hung the he hung the phone up. And just like that. Then he hung the phone up because he wanted to talk to Cody because he wanted an exclusive. Mm-hmm. I told him it was too much control, economic, too much economic control. I don't give any I said, I have to have the freedom to move around. I said, because the market varies too much for me. Sometimes I sell, sometimes I don't. I have to be able to enter shows. I have to be able to, if somebody invites me to something, I don't want a gallery telling me I can't do it. You know, that's too much control. I, I'm not a wealthy artist. I didn't come from money. 
So I have to figure out how to, I have to throw a wide net to make sure that my work is seen on a broader uh, national level as I possibly can. Because sometimes I'd be in shows and people buy things. They just walk by me like I wasn't even in the room. So I had to figure out how to maneuver myself to keep myself uh, flush with cash to be able to continue to do what I wanted to do. Because as we all know, if you're doing another job and you got to compete with people who are doing this full time, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother agony. That's a whole nother agony. Because people who are doing this full time are able to continue to perfect their craft and also have a better chance of getting patrons to support them. Mm-hmm. Tell you me, know, uh, um, um, one of the last time we talked, you, we had, you had brought up the uh, Black Romantic show. Can you talk a little bit about that? The Black Romantic show was, was, was real interesting to me because... You know, I had met Thelma, uh, you know, I was in a wedding with Thelma, um, and uh, I didn't know a whole lot about her other than, you know, what I, you know, things you read, she was one of the first, uh, you know, African-American curators at the Whitney. Uh, but by then, I had had quite a bit of a relationship with Garbo, and I'd also been in a mini documentary with Billy D. Williams, who was hosting the program. And uh, it thrusted me into a whole nother celebrity world after this thing aired in New York repeatedly. And I got invited uh, to, uh, I think it was Nick and Valerie Asher who invited me to their home and did a party for me. So I got thrusted into a whole nother arena uh, with celebrities. Uh, but, uh, uh, and at that time when I was with Garbo, I had also met Stedman Graham at, at, at this party in white that Nick and and, and, and uh, Valerie did it there, a state up in Connecticut. And they were doing the show at the Pulp Building. At the, the Pulp National, Building. The it National was a Black, Black Fine, Fine Art Show. show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Black, I think, yeah, it was a Black Fine Art Show. And I was there doing a show, and Stedman was in town. I was doing a show with Garbo in Little Rock, and Garbo said, Well, Stedman's in town. Da, da, da. I said, Yeah, I know Stedman. I met him. You know, she said, Well, he's going to come by and see your work. So he came by, and he asked me, something about doing a commission and I said I'll do commission work he said what about for Oprah I said not even for Oprah I'll do commission I said but if you see something you think she'd like uh, you're welcome to it uh, and so the Black Fine Art Show came up so I said to them I said you know black shows never really kind of worked out for me that just that's never really worked for me you know and so uh, and so Barbara said well you always complain about black people not buying your work and this and that. So, so they kind of they kind of they kind of cornered me off with it and I said okay Garbo let's do it let's do it and so uh, I sent Garbo some things up there, not knowing that, you know, uh, how this thing was put together, because I'd never gone to it. Mm-hmm. But apparently they have an opening for celebrities, and then they have the curator. Uh, I think I Thelma think would come to it. Uh, uh, Lowry, you know, Lowry Stokes. You know, they would walk through, and apparently I guess they were kind of, you know, helping educate people about what they should buy, what they shouldn't, from what I was told. I, I wasn't there. Uh and so when the black romantic thing came up, uh, uh, it happened uh, when I was at the full force of my my career with Brian Galleries. I mean, Brian Galleries would sell sometime at opening. They would do a half a million dollars in sales at opening, and they were doing over a million dollars a year with my work. And so uh, they were they so she called Brian Galleries for me to be in this show, and I kept. Telling David, I said, yeah, I don't want to. I don't know. I, said, I don't know what her angle is. I said, but I don't think I want to be. I don't want to be involved with that. And so she kept calling and kept calling and kept calling. So finally, I said, okay, I'll be in the show. Just tell her, tell her, yeah. Just tell her, yeah. And so, uh, 
after the after the selection had been made for the exhibition and stuff, you know, my mother lives in East Orange, so my mother wanted to go to it, so we decided to go to it. And uh, uh, you know, and so when I get there to the to the to the ex- exhibition, some you know, white lady runs over to me, and uh, another white gentleman said, "You Dean Mitchell?" And I said, I said, "Yeah, yeah." You know, she said, "Where where are you from?" And I said, "I'm from Kansas City." And she said, Kansas City? She said, do you know Michael Kimmelman? And I said, no, I, I didn't know. I didn't mm-hmm. know who he was. She said, well, he's a major art critic for the New York Times, and he loves your work. He just thinks you're brilliant. He, but she just went on and on. And she said, you need to leave. You need to get out of Kansas City. It does not rank culture. You need to be in New York. It's not New York, Paris, somewhere, but... Kansas City does not rain culture. You need to be in New York to get re- truly recognized. You need to be in New York. Mm-hmm. So I kind of said a few things, kind of blew it off. And uh, when things kept winding down, by then I had, you know, I published my own first book. Nobody bought a single book, you know. And the next day, the phone started ringing. My mother's phone started ringing because I know quite a few people in New York. So you're in the New York Times. You're in the New York Times. So I'm thinking, hmm. I'm in the New York Times. That's great. I got mentioned in the New York Times. Well, I didn't know how they had mentioned me in the New York Times. I had no clue how they had mentioned me. Well, my painting, you know, if you saw the review, uh, it had a painting of my title, Socrates. It was from the very top of the New York Times to the very bottom of the New York Times. Mm. Called me a virtual modern-day Vermeer and how my work dignified, you know, black people. It was just on and on about me. It started with me, you put me in the middle, and it ended with me. Uh, and he also mentioned Kehinde Wiley. Kehinde Wiley comes out of the art world. I think he's a Yale graduate or something, some kind of line like that. Mm. And so, but I got the big play, you know. And that was not supposed to happen from what I was told. <laughs> that was not supposed to go on. And so uh, I didn't realize that it had made history. Uh, I got a call from the uh, Library of Congress said they had to do a story of me uh, for their biography because I had made history of one of the largest reproductions in the history of New York Times for an artist. Anyway, and so anyway, uh, what I didn't realize, you know, upon reading the catalog, I realized that there was something else going on here with this. That this was not a show to to elevate artists or to bring a group of artists there to to not necessarily help them, but this was almost like a kind of back slap kind of thing. I was like, what is this? It was almost like, these are the artists you really, <laughs> you know, should quite be be looking at because this is kitsch. You know, this is kitsch and comes out of the black. I mean, if you read that, some of the reviews and how they kind of went at it, it was very, very interesting. Uh, and I got, you know, I think I was one of the four artists who was interviewed in it. And so I was trying to tell, I was telling the girl my journey and as I was telling her, she said, well, uh, I need to talk to Thelma. We need to make your section bigger. You know, some of the stuff you're telling me is unbelievable. Well, Thelma wouldn't go for that. She wouldn't allow that. So I said, I totally understand. You know, I said, because politics are pretty powerful in the art world, as we all know. And so uh, what I also recognized was the power of the press, because the main critic, there wasn't a single book left after that review came down Mm -hmm. so suddenly i was okay to even buy my book but so i'm expecting you know here i am thinking i got you know everybody said man don't get nobody new york times you're gonna get calls and 
I didn't get a single call from a museum or anything. So something politically squashed that profile for me. So, but I don't know what it did for other artists outside of Kahinde Wiley, because I know Kahinde Wiley, you know, uh, he apprenticed there or something. I mean, he was an artist in residence at your home museum. So he was already layered. He was already being primed for the art world because he comes right out of the art world because he went to a certain institution. You know, he studied at a certain institution. He comes from the West Coast. He had all the components of what they were looking for. I did not. I grew up in the South. I grew up poor. I grew up without a father. I grew up struggling as an illustrator at Hallmark for a while. I got fired. I entered white fine art shows. I was not what they were looking for. I don't know what it did for the other artists, uh, but she claims it was not supposed to make any kind of critique about the work. Mm-hmm. But we all know from what we read in the catalog could be nothing further from the truth. Now, I have nothing against Thelma Goldman, so don't get me wrong. Uh, I have nothing against, you know, postmodern black art. But every voice is not the same that's black. And just because you are black does not mean you see the world the same way because we all have different experiences. And if you do not know that person's journey and have not allowed them the, the really proper platform there was no lectures about the show from the artists. There were some interviews in the magazine. Nobody was invited to lecture about their work, really talk about their work on a very intimate level mm-hmm. at the Studio Harlem Museum about why they felt disenfranchised. These were artists who were struggling to build the market for their work. Now you bring them in to almost somewhat backhandedly try to, to discredit them from even having a market for their work, and then to, to say you hate the self-promotion when that's all white America has ever done with their work is promote themselves that's throughout the history of the art that white artists have promoted themselves have pushed their work have found patrons to patronize their work that's what marketing is mm-hmm. you mean to tell me <laughs> you know if nobody's willing to champion your work you shouldn't get out here and try to champion your work yourself to become a voice in American culture. Amen. Now you're going to tell artists who've been disenfranchised, who have not even had previous heroes elevated for them to pull from, to give them strength to move forward. You bring them into the, the, the heart of American culture in New York. These artists are from all over the place, from Chicago, L.A., from from the who knows from the from the Delta. Who knows where I don't know where all these African-American artists came from who were doing the black figure to bring them there. To to try to wound them in front of the, the public that they're trying to engage to support them, who barely support anybody as it is because they themselves rely upon your expertise to tell them who to buy. You come out of the white art world from the Whitney. So who does the Studio Hall Museum serve? Does it serve the few that have been endorsed by certain powerful institutions and give them the modern market to elevate their work to the, to, to the stratosphere in terms of the marketplace? Who represents that work? Do the black galleries represent that work? Or does it matter who represents that work? It matters because we 
like that to to put those artists on the level of a Jasper Johns or Andy Warhol. You need a certain body of society to say that you are now a master. You are now worthy of that endorsement. That's what museums do. That's why certain people are in museums. This is not just about somebody mastering their craft, caring about their community, trying to uplift their community. This is also about commerce. It is about power and a transferring of wealth and who they want to have that wealth. That's right. Are you a part of that fold or you are not? Did you go to the right institution to be a part of that fold? I have no uh, animosity towards someone going to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, or anywhere else they want to go. But they're just as talented as artists who did not afford to go to those institutions, who are just as talented, who are just as relevant, who are just as important to their community, who are inspiring those who have the least among us. But you bring them there to discredit them for their efforts, for their lack of exposure, Oh, that is a great sin to me. Do what you will for your power. Have your moment in the sun. But truth for artists who are really looking to make this a better world through their art, no matter what their educational background, no matter where they come from, no matter their lack of opportunity, But if their heart is in it and they are doing the best of their abilities, don't bring them there to harm them. Bring them there to enlighten them. Bring them there to make them stronger and better. Don't bring them there to hurt them. Bring them there to enlighten them, to encourage them, despite the little that they emerge from. That is the sound to me of a person who who wants to enlighten the world for a better place for all of us. We're all trying to do the best we can with the love we've been given. Man, I feel like I'm at I feel like I'm at church and, and let the let the let the let the congregation say amen because You know, I mean <laughs> power is a power is a very interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I mean when you get your moment in the sun, what will you do with your moment in the sun? Will it be all about you and your agenda? Mm-hmm. Or will it be about something larger than yourself to make the world better? That's what art's supposed to do. Art's supposed to always speak to the human condition. It doesn't matter who it comes from. It doesn't matter your racial background. If it resonates with truth and can move us forward beyond racism, beyond hatred, beyond tribalism, art can do that. Images can do that. Images can do that. <sighs> well, good brother. Man, I don't, you know, that impassioned plea the statement, the you know, I I think we should just end it there. I don't know if we could end it on a on a more uh, important note. Um, and All I can say is, Najee, you know what? 
I love this country. I know what it's like to have little. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like not to have. I understand all of that. Mm-hmm. And I have been around people with billions of dollars who bought my work. I've been around people who who say, I want something, can I put it on time payments? My career has been enriching in more ways just to, than my ability to make a living. It has enriched my soul to be sensitive, more even more sensitive to those who have little and those who are trying to better themselves. And it's just, I wish the world was a better place. I just, and I know art has always been able to, to bring us back to that sensibility. But money, money, when money gets up in it and it becomes the primary objective, mm-hmm. something is always lost in that. We've seen that repeatedly throughout the history of art. We've seen that repeatedly. But the human condition, that, that knows no color. Because we're all human beings. Has not science proven that already? The DNA? Skin color? We've got all the information now. But we still go back to this tribal crap. When are we going to emerge as, as a human race? A human, just human beings. When are we going to emerge? Fear, fear, fear. People fear what they do not know. And there's a lot of fear in this country right now. There's a lot of fear. Fear for some people who do not want you to have a decent way of life. There are people out there that's like that. Will there always be racism? Perhaps there will be. But as a human being, you have to decide what side you're going to be on. And there's only one truth. A lie changes all the time, but there's only one truth. That's That's how it is. And I hope, you know, whoever's out there reeling their money and their power, you don't live forever, and you ain't gonna take it with you. Whatever you, whatever you got, you only on borrowed time. So you know, my thing is, I'm just gonna do the best I can as a, as an artist where I am with what I have. Uh, and whoever wants to support me and other side who are getting support, Godspeed to you. Do your best, put your heart in it, and go with it. That's that's where I'm at. I'm 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 trying to be a full human being. That's where, that's where I'm at at this stage of my life. I'm just trying to be a full human being. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to be a better person. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to give back as much as I can to those who do not have. I, want to do the, I just want to do the best I can do before I leave this world. That's all I'm after. I mean, I've been able to make decent money. I'm happy I can have a comfortable life. For me, it's a lot more. It's a lot deeper than that for me. It's just a lot deeper. It runs a lot deeper for me. Mm-hmm. That's it, my brother. Man, well, it's not G. Dorsey for another installment of Buyer Talks with Dean Mitchell. Dean, where can they, you know, not that, not, not, not that you need to shout out or anything, but just tell people where you, where you want them to go to see your work and to contact you. Uh, oh, you know what? They can, go, they can go to Marie Brooks Gallery. That's the gallery I just opened up in my hometown. Uh, and it's, uh, it's on my website, uh, you know, because... She was the one who got me to paint my number set, got me even started in it, so the gallery's named after her. Uh, and 
you know, I'm really proud of space because I just had a group of, you know, young people, young people, mostly African-American kids. And they, man, they couldn't believe the space. They were just so moved by it. I had a nice conversation with them because I'm really trying to, trying to touch a lot of young people, particularly in our community, because they don't get a lot of exposure, especially in rural areas. So, and to see a role model, you know, it's, it's, you know, but that's where they can see my work. They can see my work at different galleries, but, uh, but there in particular, because I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to play a role in, in boosting the economy there. I'm trying to also educate particularly African-American people about the power of art and how it is a part of our economy. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, everything's art. I mean, when you look at fashion, when you look at automobile design, when you look at the houses we live in, I try to educate people on a full level about what the art does uh, for us as creating new jobs and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but that's where they can see my work at is, is at Marie Brooks gallery and there are other galleries, but that's, that's, that's where my heart is in Quincy. It's a little small town. Absolutely. You know, on our next conversation, I definitely would like to get in, get in a little bit more in terms of the, the economy of art, you know. Um, yeah, that's a whole. That's a well, that's a whole another, whole another business conversation. For sure, for sure. Well, well, that, yeah. Well, even knowing how to price your work, and because people are asking about prices of work, and how do you, how do you, how do, how do you get people to buy it at that price? And because you know, like I said, I started off twenty twenty five dollars, you know. But you know, people don't realize I've been doing this a long time, mm-hmm. and I've also been, you know, I've been extremely fortunate where I've had people who've helped me along the way. I've been in certain shows. Uh, you know, like out, out west, I've been in certain shows. Uh, I've been the only artist of color in certain shows, particularly because I work in a very traditional manner. Uh, and so it's 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 a lot of times you don't you don't see artists of color even in a lot of shows I've been in. So that's a whole nother uh, realm of of my career that I got thrusted into just because I was getting publicized a lot more and this kind of thing that I was totally unaware of of how the press plays a large role in people seeing your work and getting invitations to certain things and awards and all this stuff plays a role in, in people, even how people will, will look at your work and certain people buying your work brings a certain amount of credibility in the art world too. It's a, there's a, it's a lot of layers in this stuff. A lot of layers. Well, good brother. We'll tackle that on another dime. I appreciate your time again. You with master, you master artist, Dean Mitchell. Right then, is it Quincy you're in? Quincy, Florida now, or where you at again? Yeah, Quincy, Quincy, Florida. You know, of course, I'm with, with Garbo Hearn too. You know, another art, you know, gallery. I got a gallery in New Orleans that's handling my work. I have about five, five, six galleries that are, you know, handling my work. But you know, my my gallery is kind of new, uh, new venture for me. Uh, just trying to, like I said, trying to be an economic boost for the area there. Sounds good. Well, listen, we appreciate your time. Have a <laughs> have a great day. Yeah, you too. Peace.